Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. There is a small group of islands in the Pacific Ocean that to many epitomize the natural kingdom. The birthplace of our understanding of evolution, first populated by an Irishman, abandoned for some unknown reason by his ship, the Galapagos Islands are still a mythical place today due to their geology and geography. Their lands and waters filled with exotic and unique creatures. In this special episode of Future Proof, we'll join a team of scientists and engineers led by Professor Chris Bean of the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, or DIAS, as they make the long journey to the other side of the world, and we'll follow them into the mouth of the largest volcano on the island of Isabella, Sierra Negra, as they conduct their research into seismic activity and try to understand how to better forecast violent volcanic eruptions. Our story starts on more familiar ground, though, on Merrion Square on a brisk Dublin morning. I'm at Dias HQ to meet Chris Bean and the members who will undertake this field trip, Martin Mulhoff and Eleanor Dunn. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. Jonathan. Yes. Hi. Hi, Emma. Hi, Emma. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks so much for all of your um, your organising so far. Hi. Hi. Ah, I'm Martin. Martin, hi, how are you? I believe we're we're travelling to the Galapagos. That's right, yeah. Martin is a very tall German-born engineer who's been living in Ireland for as long as he can remember. The sort of person who doesn't get ruffled by much, I'd say. He's exactly who you'd want on this sort of trip. Hi, Anna. Hello. How are you? Good to meet you in the flesh. Eleanor is my guide to the research, a geologist who's now specialising in science communications. (laughs) Hi, Chris, how are you? Jonathan, how are you doing? Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Chris is the principal investigator, a hugely respected and instantly likeable scientist who's been studying volcanoes for decades. He has an amazing way with words and endless energy, which has earned him sort of a godlike reputation amongst his colleagues, although he'll kill me for saying that. We meet in the geophysics library in a classically high-ceilinged Georgian room, the shelves stuffed with academic texts. While each of Chris's projects will have its own niche focus, looking at different types of volcanoes, tremors and seismic activity, the main goal generally is, of course, to understand what gives rise to volcanic eruptions. How can we tell when a volcano is about to erupt? Now, that's a very interesting question, Jonathan, and it's a very tricky question to answer because volcanoes, they make a lot of different types of signals, say seismic signals or ground vibration signals before they erupt. And sometimes they make these signals and they don't erupt. And sometimes they go a little bit quiet and they do erupt. So they don't behave themselves very well in a kind of predictable way. So that's one of the main goals uh, of our work in the Galapagos. Galapagos is a fantastic place in which to study this. We have a very large caldera, a very large volcano. Um, It has a, a complex system of interaction between faults on the earth and and the magma that's that's rising so it produces a huge array of different types of signals and we're interested in understanding the details of those signals as the magma approaches the surface
So one of the things we've actually found uh, through some of this work is that it's generally thought that tremor on volcanoes is related to magma movement in the shallow uh, volcanic structure. And what I mean by tremor is not just individual earthquakes, but this continuous kind of uh, hissing or this continuous uh, shaking of the ground. By analyzing insane amounts of seismic activity and data, Chris's team have found that the tremors that happen before an eruption may be the sound of weak rock in the Earth's crust breaking up, essentially creating a path for magma to flow to the surface. But when the magma actually starts to come out, then everything, the tremor goes quiet. So the flow of the magma itself is not the tremor signal, it's actually the breaking of the rock. It might sound like a, a kind of academic detail, but it does matter from a hazard uh, or risk mitigation point of view, knowing what does that signal mean. It's like kind of medical diagnostics. So, you know, if the, if the doctor, if he or she doesn't know what they're listening to, then it's very hard to diagnose what your issue is. So it's the same thing. We listen to these signals, but we have to interpret them in a certain way. And that interpretation is quite difficult in these complex environments. To understand these biomarkers for eruptions, researchers need to record data from the source and then use expertise to analyze and interpret that data. It's this skill set that Chris's team have developed despite the fact that there are no volcanoes in Ireland. It has made them an attractive partner to other universities doing geological research across the globe. In the case of this project, that's with the University of Edinburgh and the Instituto Geofisico in Quito. The trip we're about to take is a service trip where the crew will download data from sensors, check and upgrade the equipment at various sites and install a new antenna so that future tremors and activity can be relayed back to Quito, Edinburgh and Dublin in real time. And while a trip to the Galapagos does sound like a holiday, there's real hard work to be done. For those going into the centre of the caldera, it's nine kilometres wide, so it's half of that, but four and a half kilometre trip to the centre doesn't sound very far, but you're actually walking on lava, very friable material. It's like walking on black glass. It is like walking on a field of glass. There's nothing else there. And it's quite tricky, especially if you're carrying heavy equipment, your foot, you can break through it. And it's quite arduous. You're on the equator, very high temperatures. You need plenty of water, plenty of planning. But first, we have to get there. And as you can imagine, it's not exactly a walk in the park. So getting from Dublin to the Galapagos Islands is quite an arduous process. So it starts in Dublin. Hello. Team's complete. Hello. How are we feeling? Good? All ready to go? Yes, very excited. Yeah, me too. All right, sorry. <laughs> now this is a small matter of 32 hours of travel. Yes. <laughs> uh, fly to Amsterdam. 11 hours and 10 minutes. We should be able to arrive nicely on schedule. I'm then get a flight from Amsterdam to Quito and Ecuador, and then get a flight from Quito to one of the Galapagos Islands, a small island called Baltra, where the main airport is. And then get a small boat from Balta to Santa Cruz Island. And then take a 4x4 four four taxi right through Santa Cruz Island. And then from Santa Cruz Island, get a fast boat to Isabella Island, one of the other Galapagos Islands, which is about 80 kilometers, the same distance as from here to Wales on a much smaller fast boat. And then go to the town of Villa Mill. And then in Villa Mill, get a Jeep 
close to the rim of Sierra Negra volcano, which is where we're going. And then from there on, it's hiking. But wait, we're getting ahead of ourselves. By way of that montage you've just heard, we've now arrived in Villa Mill on the island of Isabella, far from Dublin. And thankfully, the real hiking doesn't start until tomorrow. Villa Mill is in some ways a lot like many small South American tourist towns. Lots of vegetation, dusty roads, a hodgepodge of local restaurants, some shabby shops, and a handful of cocktail bars on the beach. There are some stark differences though. The water here is insanely clear and there are characters everywhere. As we arrive into the port, we have quite the welcome committee. Sally Lightfoot crabs, giant and red all over, but for a blue face and yellow crown, cling to the wooden pillars that stretch into the water. A brazen duo of seals block our path, so we literally have to step over them. And here and there, a black oil stain of scaly and enormous marine iguanas are piled over each other, basking in the heat of the midday sun. You can't but step off the boat with an enormous grin on your face. These are the legendary Galapagos Islands. A quick turnaround in the hotel and we meet outside for a morning coffee and to talk out the plan tomorrow before going our separate ways. Okay, thank you everyone uh, for meeting. Um, what we wanted to discuss today was our plan for tomorrow, where we're going to go, what everyone is going to Steven do. Stephen Hernandez is from Instituto Geofisico, one of Dias's partners on the mission, and his team helped organise the extraordinary logistics to make this trip happen. There are permissions required for everything on the Galapagos, as the local authorities have a deep understanding of how precious this little archipelago, a thousand kilometres from mainland Ecuador, really is. So, uh, this site that we're going to, uh, as some of you already know, is, is distance-wise some of the one of the closest um, stations we can access. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's easy. Um, we do have to descend a very steep crater wall. We have a lot of vegetations to to break our fall. Um, but nevertheless, with the amount of gear that we're taking, we have to we have to be mindful of of, of the hazards. Health and safety out of the way, Stephen asks Martin, our engineer, to explain the work we need to do on site. Okay, sure. So we will have to service the two instruments there. So to download the data and check that everything's working. So on the seismometer and also the tilt meter. That's the first thing. Um, and then we want to upgrade uh, the small pit of the seismometer. So we have to bring a pocket and cement for that. And then the bigger job is because we want to at the radio streaming, we have to bring the mast, of course, uh, and also all the other bits and pieces to actually mount it, so the guy wires and all these things. Sophie, for those of us outside of the seismic team, can you explain what we're doing tomorrow? Yeah, sure. So from a technical perspective... This is Dr. Sophie Butcher, a geologist from the University of Edinburgh. Adding the radio telemetry um, is a huge benefit because we will then be able to access the data remotely in Quito and we won't need to visit these stations potentially quite as often. Uh, and from a health and safety perspective, that's great because it means we don't have to conduct this really potentially dangerous fieldwork. And from a scientific perspective, uh, it's really important that we have a comprehensive catalogue of seismicity uh, from this volcano. We have stations that are distributed across the caldera and by measuring earthquakes at all of those, we can get a sense 
sense of where those earthquakes are occurring and how big they are. Now, if we have a really good catalogue of those earthquakes, uh, we can understand what a base level of unrest is like for this volcano. And we can then start to detect if there are subtle changes, for instance, a subtle uptick in the rate of earthquakes, perhaps may imply we have a change in the system below. Thank you, Sophie. Um, and thank you, team. We'll reconvene tomorrow at 7 a.m. I'm sort of looking forward to tomorrow and sort of dreading it. But I have the whole day off and I'm dying to explore the islands and meet some of its incredible creatures. That's coming up in part two. Stay with us. You're listening to a special edition of Future Proof. We're following a team of researchers from the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies to a volcanic island in the Galapagos. Eleanor Dunn is a researcher at Dias, and we're walking down a wooded path to the shore to take a tour of one of the snorkeling hotspots of this island, Isabella. It's a great opportunity for me to get a better understanding of why these islands are so interesting to geologists. Although the Galapagos Islands are incredibly unique and special for tourists to visit, they are particularly incredible to visit as a volcanologist because they've got these amazing volcanic landscapes. And this is why we've come to the Galapagos Islands. Sierra Negra doesn't look like your classical cone-shaped volcano that your child might make for a school project. It's a caldera. And from the sky, it looks more like a giant crater than a volcano. So Sierra Negra is uh, a caldera. What, what is a caldera? A caldera is slightly different from what you would imagine a volcano to be, which is the typical pointy shape. A caldera is very wide and usually not that tall. Uh, so it's made up of a caldera rim, which is basically where the crater of the volcano is. And the crater is more of a flat depression rather than the typical pointy shape. So if you think of like a souffle in the oven when it sinks, uh, that is kind of what a caldera does. But the reason it sinks is because it's ejected and erupted so much magma that it basically loses volume uh, underneath it. So the top of it will sink because there's nothing there. Some of the largest eruptions in history have led to the creation of calderas. The Lagarita caldera eruption happened around 28 million years ago, part of the San Juan volcanic field in Colorado. It expelled around 5,000 cubic kilometers of material. Think about that. Try to imagine something of that scale. It completely engulfed the surrounding area for miles and miles. And scientists think this one event alone could have contributed to a cooling of the entire planet. How significant are these eruptions? I mean, do they end in disaster usually? So the, the biggest caldera eruptions, if they had happened in kind of human history, they would be very disastrous and they would uh, cause widespread devastation wherever they erupted. Uh, fortunately, there haven't been really large caldera eruptions that ha have happened in human history, uh, but even smaller caldera eruptions like Sierra Negra, uh, they can erupt and uh, release a smaller amount of lava, which can not be as dangerous as the typical caldera eruptions 
that might happen. So this caldera it, that we're, we're going to, uh, how does it rate in terms of size, Sierra Negra, and how active is it exactly? So Sierra Negra isn't, isn't that big compared to many volcanic calderas. Um, and its, its eruption history is a bit more, uh, it's, it's not that irregular. So it last erupted in 2018 and before that it erupted in 2005. So the eruptions aren't that far apart, but luckily their eruptions are quite small uh, and concentrated to one side of the caldera. So luckily the people on the nearest town uh, haven't actually been affected by these eruptions yet because the lava always flows to the other side of the caldera. Any stroll around the Galapagos is a treasure trail, of course. And as we walked and talked, multicoloured lizards skittered away from our path. Butterflies beat their wings in the air. Those infamous finches fluttered and chirped in the bushes. And every once in a while, a large rustling of branches signaled the slow but powerful movement of giant tortoises, enormous, impossible beasts that roam the islands with unimpeachable freedom. But the central premise of, of this work is that we need to figure out how to better predict volcanoes. And this is an active volcano. How do we know that it's not going to erupt when I'm making this program on top of it? So luckily, because we're traveling to the Caldera is a massive group of scientists. We have a lot of equipment and one of uh, one type of equipment we have is seismometers and what we found from previous research is that leading up to a Sierra Negra eruption the seismicity greatly increases and the rate of small uh, local earthquakes on Sierra Negra really increases and it's very obvious to see when measuring earthquake activity. So a very good sign that it's about to erupt is all of these earthquakes. And luckily we know that although the earthquake rate is increasing, it hasn't got to that point yet where we would think, oh, maybe an eruption is due to happen soon. I know um, we've been walking for a while now. I promise you the beach is just around this corner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a very nice walk. It's, a... <laughs> it's very hot though. It's yeah, very hot. It's very hot. <laughs> we finally reach our destination and are greeted by Harry Moscoso, a native Galapagueño, former national park ranger turned tour guide extraordinaire. Uh, my name is Harry and um, you have the warmest welcome board. Uh, our uh, excursion today is going to be, we're going to ride to the place known as Los Tuneles. We're going to do, a, a, we're going to look for penguins and fur seals and stuff. And then we're gonna do a walk, it's a dry landing, looking for uh, blue for the boobies, with eggs, with babies. And in the water there are turtles, rays and Apart sharks. from the small town the of Villa Mill, Isabella itself is a pristine island. And as we navigate along the coastline, we see nothing but rock, dense vegetation, and the occasional giant turtle the size of a dishwasher coming up for air, a sign of the magic that awaits us. We arrive at a place called Los Tuneles, a natural lava field that over time has evolved into a network of caves and bridges made from craggy volcanic rock that spans an area of two square kilometers. Beneath us is a body of crystal clear water that houses a zoo's worth of exotic animals. So the whole area here are plenty of uh, marine biodiversity of uh, crustacean, lobster, uh, there are turtles, a lot of kind of fishes, penguins, seahorses, shark, rays. 
So all of this marine biodiversity is supported here by uh, phytoanthropic and zooplankton, which is transported here or drifted here by the high tide. So the high tide provides uh, the zooplankton, which is coming through those kind of canals and tunnels, and that's why we have such a uh, wide the spread marine biodiversity. And actually, originally this place was a lobster fishing place by local fishermen, uh, which once since 35, 40 years ago were coming here to catch lobster, diving inside the tunnels, and that's why they named this place as Lost Tunnels. The biodiversity and the endemism on the island is multiple, but this is because biographical isolation and ecological isolation. The geographical isolation has been major force. You might think that volcanic rock is quite fertile and so has led to a thriving vegetation, which in turn invites new species and led to the diversity on the island. But the real driving force for the biodiversity of the Galapagos is simply its remoteness. Species that have drifted here over time breed in practical isolation, so that across generations they adapt to their new environment in a clean way. And these adaptations are not undone or diluted by crossbreeding with their original home species. Upon arriving to this Garden of Eden, they were not unlike Adam and Eve, starting all over again. Uh, there we have two turtles. They are belong to the black or green Pacific turtle, known as Kelonia Midas agassizi. It's, and somewhere around there is a penguin once again. I saw it. They are very fast because, especially early in the morning, they are for fishing. They can swim very fast at the surface, but faster under the water, where they look like they are flying when they are. So we have two species here, turtles and penguins. Turtles are not fishing either, they are feeding on, on, on algae, but you can see the carapace of turtles that look very well out of the, of, of, the, of the water. It is because as every single reptile belongs to the ectothermic group, uh, they need to warm up. So that's why they remain for a long time sometimes at the surface, motionless, like doing nothing, but warming up. It was finally time for us to get into the water and I didn't need a second invitation. Snorkeling in the Galapagos is a spiritual experience. Over the course of a few hours that day, we encountered so many incredible animals, from giant turtles to so many species of colorful fish, mischievous and slightly terrifying sea lions, graceful rays gliding majestically. It's a reminder of how beautiful and precious this planet really is. In the water, we follow Harry around as he points out these various wonders. He's like a seal himself the way he moves. Suddenly, he gestures for us to come close. He's found a cave where half a dozen white-tipped sharks lie on the seabed, sleeping. It's David Attenborough stuff. That was amazing. That was, oh my God, that was incredible. We saw sharks and rays and um, seahorses. I can't. (laughs) I'm lost for words at how amazing that was. Unbelievable. Such incredible wildlife. It was like a dream. That was so cool. Yeah. Well, the seahorse, that was like, that was difficult to identify. Yeah, yeah, it looked like a stick for a second. (laughs) I thought it was like a piece of wood. But those sort of sleeping sharks underneath the cave were amazing. why in Galapagos the birds' populations are very small. Other places there are thousands of birds.
somewhere around there is a penguin once again i saw it they are very fast because especially early in the morning they are for fishing they can swim very fast on the surface but faster under the water where they look like they are flying like they are flying thousands of birds Back on dry land, it was Feria Day, Dia de las Muertes. It's not a flashy affair with parades like you might see in Mexico City. It's much more muted. People are lined along the dusty main street of Villa Mill with a beer in one hand and some combination of plantains and rice in the other, watching local caballeros bareback race along a hundred metre stretch of dirt. Tonight, there will be a big barbecue and the entire town will eat together. As I sat curbside, cheering along for the winning riders, I was reminded of the importance of the work of Dias and others trying to predict eruptions. Because in the not so distant past, communities just like this one were completely wiped out in the blink of an eye. In Guatemala, volcanoes rule the landscape with a fiery grip. On the 3rd of June 2018, Volcán de Fuego, or Volcano of Fire, stirred with increasing intensity, and the morning witnessed a surge in explosive activity. The eruptions propelled an ash plume to over 33,000 feet, but this was only the beginning. Surges of superheated gas, ash and debris, known as pyroclastic flows, moved at nearly 100 kilometers per hour down the ravines surrounding the volcano. Villages and towns were buried in searing mud, ash and rocks, wiping entire communities away in an instant. A local airport was forced to shut down. Crops failed. Heavy rainfall during and after the eruption turned the volcanic mix into a fast-moving slurry called a lahar. Roads were cut off, preventing emergency services from reaching those in need. And while thousands of people were evacuated, nearly 200 lost their lives to the destruction. The once vibrant communities around Fuego were transformed into landscapes of despair, engulfed by the relentless onslaught of nature's fury. The 2018 Volcán de Fuego eruption remains a reminder of the unpredictable might of volcanic forces and the fragility of human existence in their shadow.
We've been jostled along in a pickup for about an hour now, away from the town of Villa Mill on Isabella Island, taking the snaking dirt roads up to the lip of the Sierra Negra caldera. And when we finally get there, looking down, the view is nothing short of epic. So the, the trucks are leaving and uh, the fog is clearing up and we have this incredible view of the caldera, which is quite unlike anything I've ever seen. What exactly are we looking at, Sophie? So we're standing on the kind of south, southwestern rim of the caldera. Um, it's quite hard to visualize. 10 kilometers across is a really big distance. So we're standing at around five o'clock on a clock face. Um, we're about to descend the caldera wall. So it's around 100 meters of vertical descent. And then there's this flat moat, this kind of plateau that's the caldera floor. And as we stand in the caldera, we then look up uh, to what we call the sinuous ridge. So this is a record, a permanent record of defamation of previous episodes of uplift and movement from within the caldera. So when we get large magnitude earthquakes and we get slip, uh, it occurs within the caldera and, and this ridge is a record of that defamation and that movement in years gone by. So the other side of this flat moat, there is a this sort of a hilly formation that has lots of ridges and different shapes. And presumably this 3D shape changes over time depending on what's going on underneath it? Exactly. Um, we have a really dynamic fault system within the caldera that's able to accommodate a lot of movement. Um, and so beyond the other side of this, uh, it's called a trapdoor fault. Uh, we go up over the hill and down the other side and there's a very large plateau that's again, it's the caldera floor on the other side of the ridge. <laughs> it's beautiful. This looks really steep to go downhill though. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty slippery. Like the... the uh, the regolith, the, the, what's underneath your feet is pretty loose and then everything's covered and protected by these ferns and because of the altitude we're at, so we're at a thousand meters now, this tends to sit in the cloud a lot and so it gets very dewy and wet and moist which is then very slippy so it's really careful work coming down here. There's a lot of vegetation to kind of hang on to and brace your fall um, but yeah it's slippy. <laughs> With our gear on our backs it was time to get going but I kept looking for some sort of entrance. You go down here normally as well, yeah? I think so, right around here. There yeah. <laughs> what do you mean you go down here, there's nothing, there's no path? Yeah, there, there is one, we make one. <laughs> he wasn't joking. We are now, all of us, trekking down an incredibly steep ridge with our backpacks and gear, pushing through the thick carpet of tall ferns, and we began to pitch down a sheer ridge. Listener, I was not my most graceful self. Yes, that is the sound of me falling on my ass. And again. And again. And again. But eventually we make it down to what looks like a moat, but is actually a floor of lava. It doesn't look like lava. I had in my overexcited brain expected molten rock and yellow and orange gurgling, but instead it's just weird gravel and the occasional black rock that looks like it has melted over itself. Yeah. What exactly is the difference between magma and lava anyway? So we generally refer to magma when it's being stored beneath the surface. Once it's come to the surface, uh, that's when we, specifically in a, an explosive eruption, that's when we just start to describe it as lava. 
Um, you've described to me, you've seen some of these lavas down at the beach that are very soft and ripply and they look like they've been free flowing and it's really black and shiny. Uh, that is what we call pahoe hoe lava. So that's a word that comes from Hawaii and that's where a lot of our descriptions for these things come from. And it's a lot like the lavas that we often see there at volcanoes like Kilauea. Um, and it's exactly that. So as, mag as that magma reaches the surface, the lava is then flowing. It's cooling as it's flowing. Um, in Sierra Negra, in the center of the caldera, for instance, we have another kind of lava, another word that comes from the Hawaiian culture. It's a aa. It's very sharp and glassy. It's very difficult to walk over. It's very painful. Um, and then what we're standing on here is more of a, it's what we call scoria. Scoria may look just like gravel, but when you pick it up, it's incredibly light. Because when it formed in the eruption, the lava was permeated with escaping gas that created bubbles in the rock that stayed there when it cooled down. Not entirely unlike how we would make a crunchy bar, I would imagine. All of these different lavas get to their current state depending on how they were erupted. And that might depend on how quickly they were erupted, how many volatiles are in the the magma itself so by volatiles you know gases and liquids and water um, and it depends what temperature and what pressure that all happened at so if it happens very quickly the lava or the magma undergoes a process called fragmentation so it very quickly decompresses um, and you can see just by picking up some of the rocks around here there's lots of tiny little holes where there were gas bubbles uh, and we can see the evidence of those volatiles in that lava this is it this is it. It's still here. We arrive at the station, and again, it's not what I expected at all. You'd easily walk right past it, because, as Martin explains, these sensors are buried underground. And the two instruments, they're here in the ground. We mark them often here with, like this, with circles, so no one steps on it, because it's just, uh, basically, it's a plastic bin with a lid, so if you step on it, you would break in there. There are also other reasons you need to be careful when opening these containers. Yeah, we've seen uh, scorpions, small scorpions, here at the site last time, so you have to be careful when you move some, this box, for example, or you do anything on the ground. You have to watch it a little bit. Scorpions? Yeah, scorpions. Yeah. That was not on the hazard list. Uh, no, I think it, um, it, it, it was probably. <laughs> really? <laughs> I skipped the scorpion part. <laughs> the setup is fairly simple. There's a tilt meter, which measures the angle at which the ground settles after an activity. Enough of these around the place and you get a really good idea of the 3D shapes a volcano will morph into post-eruption. There it is. So it kind of looks like, um, like you know when you get a, a tub of hand cream? It's like a white tub of hand cream on a plastic base with a wire coming out of it. What, what exactly is a tilt meter? Yeah, a tilt meter measures the inclination of the ground. So if there's some change, it records that uh, statically. So, <coughs> uh, so it permanently records how much tilt the ground has. So if it changes, that's recorded. This tilt meter here is uh, five years in this place now, so it recorded what happened at the 2018 eruption. There's also a seismometer, which measures the tremors in the ground in various directions. There you go. So you see uh, it's sitting on a piece of rock uh, at the bottom there. That's not really ideal. So we want to change that and pour in some concrete, which is, uh, we think, a little bit better than that. Why would you pour some concrete in here? 
yeah, we think the coupling is a bit better, the coupling to the ground. This is kind of maybe a bit wobbly, where, how it sits now, so it's probably not ideal. You don't want it to wobble unnaturally, you only want it to move when the ground is moving. Exactly, that's exactly that. Finally, there's a data logger that records all of this information and it's connected to an enormous battery, which some poor sucker had to carry all the way here on their back. Yeah, we just connected with a laptop into the instrument, this hasmometer, and the great news is that we have a complete data set since last time we were here, 11 months ago. And uh, what, is it, what does a complete data set mean? What sort of, how, how often does it record? Yeah, it's recording continuously. So the ground vibration is recorded uh, 100 times per second because we want to record high frequency signals like local earthquakes or tremor. And um, yeah, it does that continuously all the time. So it did this here all the time since December until now. And it's all there, which is great. How sensitive is the seismometer? Like if we, if we were stomping around on the ground, would it pick that up? Yeah, very easily. So these seismometers, they're so sensitive, they can detect earthquakes that occur on the other side of the planet if they have a magnitude five, six, kind of six or more. So that's a very large distance, obviously. So they're really sensitive. So you might pick up, for example, if there's a, the car coming up to collect us there a few hundred meters up the rim, we probably would see this here. Wow. On the screen, I can see your steps as huge, giant earthquakes. Yes, um, exactly. So you're now getting live data, so the instruments work. Um, hopefully get them in the buckets tomorrow, test radio over the next week or two. Yeah, sooner, yeah, next few days, and um, that's it. On this mission, the team are checking the equipment for corrosion, improving the stability of instruments, and crucially, they're adding an antenna to be able to send this information in real time back to base. Yeah. What are we okay. looking at here? Oh, so that's the that's yeah. the web page of the yeah. seismometer, so yeah. you know you got your signal. Yep. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. change settings, download data and stuff. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> you look like you're holding your baby. <laughs> <laughs> he looks quite happy. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Big smile on Marco's face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Under the heat of the sun, on a floor of lava, this diverse team worked together on different tasks, troubleshooting and MacGyvering along the way. A German turned Irishman, two English researchers, one in Edinburgh, the other in Dias in Dublin, a Mexican-American working in Quito, and finally Marco from mainland Ecuador. Together, they make a great team. A few hours later, when the work is done, Sophie explains why this work is so important. So we're just wrapping up here now at this last site and it's been a really successful campaign. We've installed radio telemetry to all of our stations. That means that we're going to be able to see that seismic data in real time at Dias at the University of Edinburgh. But crucially, the legacy of this project, we've also integrated these stations with the network that's run permanently by Instituto Geofisico in Quito. Um, this started as a project just for research and curiosity's sake, but by having this permanent installation here now and working with our collaborators in Ecuador, for them and for officials who are routinely monitoring the state of this volcano every day, by being able to see that data in real time, it's going to really help efforts to monitor and ultimately forecast when there might be changes to the volcano and potentially an eruption in the future. I'll be heading home soon, but the crew will stay here for two weeks doing field work on several sites across the islands, all of them a lot more challenging than this initial hike. And while the data is being analysed back in Dublin, they'll stay for a few days to have conversations in the community, which is really important. 
listening to them as well as educating them because the scientists in Quito and the local islanders are partners in this project and all of them have an interest in the lessons that can be learned here at Sierra Negra. The morning I'm due to fly home, I'm woken by a small congregation outside my window making a pilgrimage to the local church, reciting decades of the rosary and singing hymns. With all the excitement that this island brings, boat tours to exotic diving locations, incredible hikes, stunning wildlife, and an endless stream of scientists studying everything that makes this place so special, it's easy to forget that this is a place where people are born, live, work, fall in love, and start the cycle all over again. Millions of people around the world live out their days in the shadow of a volcano never sure of what the next day might bring. With science, we may be able to remove some of that uncertainty and help prevent eruptions like Volcán de Fuego from having such tragic consequences. Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.